Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, it is my honor and pleasure to have on Cameron Davis. Cameron is joining us to talk about leadership, his personal life journey uh, from Army and soldier life, and um, going through his life and looking at ways to deal with struggles, PTSD, and other things. So Cameron, welcome. And uh, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hey, Simon, thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on today. Um, yeah, so I, as you said, I, I served in the Army, I did 24 years, uh, retired in 2019. Um, since then, I've gone on to, uh, you know, get a, a little help from different things that I experience throughout the military. Um, and I've received a Bachelor of Science in Organizational Leadership and a Master of Science in Strategic Leadership from uh, the University of Charleston. So thank you again for having me on. Yes, very welcome. And from from knowing you and, and your life story, you've been, you know, there's been quite a lot of changes, quite a lot of interesting events that have occurred. And could you please give us a little bit, um, you know, about your background and how you came to be so interested in uh, leadership and your 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 life journey? Yeah, so uh, I can't really say that uh, I started out with uh, the idea of being in a leadership position or even uh, pursuing any any type of uh, leadership or whatever. You know, growing up, I grew up and I was the oldest of four and, and um, my father or stepfather was uh, quite physically and uh, psychologically abusive in many aspects. So, um, you know, I, as a child, I, I really had a hard time and I struggled with self-esteem and, and I always felt like um, that I was being you know, put down and, and really just didn't equal much. I didn't, I didn't have or hold much value. Um, despite that, my, my parents played this, uh, on again, off again, uh, type of, of religious beliefs and, and going to church and, and then we wouldn't go to church. And when we were going to church, it was very extreme uh, religious uh, beliefs. And and when they were not going to church, it was it was very extreme uh, in the opposite direction. Um, I remember whether it was a moment of time where we were uh, in church or or not in church and of course i was in church the whole time because <laughs> it was a good way for my my parents to, to get a free night uh to send me off to church uh, and all of my brothers and sisters as well um but regardless i remember a very common phrase which which uh derives from proverbs thirteen twenty four, which was spare the rod and spoil the child so you know, my father, he, on a, on a regular and daily basis would, uh, uh, he would reach in his pocket and he'd, he'd pull out his pocket knife and he'd, he'd open it up and, uh, he would just kind of hold it up in the air. And, and, and we all knew what that meant. That meant we have to go get the knife and go outside and cut a switch. 
And as a child, you know, psychologically growing up, uh, that's really, I'm not sure which was harder, the, the spanking or picking your own switch, because, you know, you're out there cutting branches off of a tree and literally hitting yourself to see which one would be too hard or which one would be too light. And, you know, and you had to balance the right one, because if you came in with the wrong one, uh, it was even worse. So, you know, between between that regular, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not sparing the rod uh, environment, in addition to that, you know, my stepfather always kind of used uh, a lot of really negative talk to me. So, um, and, and, and again, I, I, this isn't a, a pity party. My, my dad treated me bad kind of thing, but, you know, as a kid, it's what set my mindset moving forward. So I, I received a lot of, you know, like negative talk, like, you know, use your head for something else besides a hat rack or, you know, if birds had your brains, it'd be flying backwards, you know, dumb, stupid, uh, useless. These were all things that I equated to myself. That's what I believed in myself because, well, that's what I was told. Um, but, you know, in the same aspect, despite all of this, as I, as I grew and, and, you know, um, uh, got older and really started looking at myself, I realized, well, there was a lot of positive things as well that I kind of got from my dad as well. Like um, he used to tell me all the time, you know, can't never could till he tried. And it, as I got older, I realized that, well, hey, you know, I, I can say can't all day long. And, and as long as I say I can't, I can't do something. But if I tell myself I can and I try, then I have a greater opportunity of actually succeeding than if I do nothing at all. So there was a definite positive thing there. And um, he also used to tell me that I can't always get what I want. And, and it was his way of, of saying, you know, no, you can't have it. But, you know, I, as I got older, I realized that, well, life isn't all about me and the things that I want and what I can get. Uh, and sometimes I just have to be thankful for what I do have. And then, you know, one of the last big things for me was a, a strong work ethic of, you know, make sure you always do um, everything right the first time, because when you don't do things right the first time, other people have to come behind you and they have to redo your work. So um, so it it really identified a sense of work ethic and based upon that i moved around a little bit you know i i graduated high school and uh moved away took my chances went to north carolina that was a big thing for me because uh again you know i i struggled with self-confidence but uh, i just latched on to somebody else I, I had this real strong follower kind of mindset and i just followed right along with somebody uh but at some point you know in in 96 i finally you know really kind of uh decided that i had to do something in my life and i i was scared i it, it, i mean i can't even um, describe the fear that i had and the thought of 
going to basic training and, and joining the army. But, uh, you know, I, I was on a, a very long road of going nowhere and I had, I knew I had to do something. And I, I finally took that chance and I did it and I joined the army in 96. Yeah, that, that must have been uh, yeah, quite quite the, the challenge and quite the obstacle to overcome your fear there, your, you know, with this lack of self-esteem. And just for, for the audience, I mean, just hearing you speak, you don't seem like this, the type of person that has low self-esteem or lack of confidence. And my point here is you've made a, a long journey through that. And listening to your story, what I find very interesting is also these these polarities and the ways you have reframed and integrated the good and the bad in a constructive way. And this is one of the most important parts of uh, psychotherapy, for example. And just to follow up on uh, one thing you were saying, you, you mentioned the strong religious background. Was that uh, some like Protestant church? Because, and you, you mentioned that in the you know, in let's say in the public life, your family was very uh, virtuous, right? Appearing virtuous, but then in the private, there would be this opposite polarity. Is that correct? Well, I'm I'm not sure if if that is exactly uh, how I'm I'm trying to to convey it. They, when I say on again and off again, I mean that um, in their private and public life. Uh, at certain points, they were very religious. Uh, they went to church. They they at home was very biblical Bible study. Uh, everything was done, uh, but but more at an extreme level. Um, and then when they were not in church, uh, it it was very public and and at home that they clearly were not. Uh, and their behaviors reflected exactly that, that they were not. Now, growing up, um, I started out in a Baptist church, um, and that was more, as I said, you know, we had a Baptist church right next door to our house, and uh, they had a, a really nice um, RA program, and RA is uh, Royal Ambassador, and um you know, my parents kind of were like, yep, go to church. You know, that's that's good thing for you to do and whatever that give them time and that got us out of their hair and so on. Um, but it also allowed me to do things with the royal ambassadors and stuff, uh, which really kind of helped me learn a lot of different things that counteracted to some extent some of the the type of negative talk I was receiving at home yes. um, in some case and sometimes. Yeah. And but, sorry, Cameron, just sorry to interrupt. And for those who don't know, like me, what, what is the Royal Ambassadors? Uh, Royal Ambassadors um, really, and, and I'm not the, the expert on this, but Royal Ambassadors is nothing more than a youth program within the Baptist church. So, uh, and, and you have to forgive me. I really don't remember what the girls were called the, the girls had their little program and the boys had their little program and for the boys it was royal ambassadors and you had like a, a youth minister or youth uh, um instructor or teacher or mentor uh and we would all get together once a week 
and we'd have kind of like a Bible study, but not really Bible study. We would do different things. Uh, and we'd, we'd have RA camp in the summertime and you'd learn how to tie knots and shoot bows and arrows and, and different things like that. So it was just a, a youth church group focused on providing, you know, positive attributes and, and, um, a positive environment in, in our youth. But from there, um, when my parents did start going to church, we, we went, uh, more non-denominational. So, uh, in, I grew up in the South. So, um, you know, it, we, we have like non-denominational or holiness type church. So it's, it's a little bit more, I would say closer to Protestant. Right. Okay. Now, and going forward when you, so we're at joining the army, when you joined the army, what, what gave you the courage to do so? And, and also you, you mentioned you were in um, North Carolina or you were following somebody, but what was uh, like, you, you had to get away from that house. It sounds like, or you, you decided to leave. Yeah. I, you know, if, if I'm being honest, you know, at the time that I moved out, uh, I was, I was 18. I was so ready to leave. I was ready to get out of the house. Um, nowadays I, I really dislike using the word hate because hate is such a strong word. It, it, it's such a strong emotion and feeling, and it does more damage to ourself sure. than it actually does to the idea of it but at the time i i really really just hated my stepfather and i i couldn't wait and wanted to get as far away as i could and um you know i i made friends with um with a girl and uh with her mother and and there was some a little bit of uh trauma there where um a death in the family and so on. So they were making big life decisions. And, and one of those life decisions was that they were going to move to North Carolina. And for me, I jumped on the bandwagon really quick because I thought, hey, I'm ready to get out of here. And what a better way. You know, I don't have money. I don't have a job. I don't have I really don't have anything. And, um, you know, these people are willing to take me in. I'm jumping on the bandwagon and going with them. And that's exactly what I did. And I got there and I got a job. Um, I I remember my first job in North Carolina was uh, at a at a Bojangles restaurant and uh, I was a biscuit maker. So I would walk uh, every morning. It was it was probably about uh, two, two and a half miles away from where we lived. And I, I would walk every morning at like four in the morning in uh, you know, the cold or the rain or whatever there was, because that's all I had and uh, go and make the biscuits at Bojangles. So, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, at some point I, I changed jobs. I started working for, um, uh, Ford and, um, um, you know, I kind of, I don't know. I wandered around a lot. I was lost to myself trying to figure out what it was that I was trying to do. And uh, my stepfather's mother passed away. And um, I really I, I, I use that as my excuse to to move and, and non commit, really. Uh, and I went back to Florida. 
Uh, and that was somewhere around 1995. Okay. And and what was the i mean what was the prompt to get you to join the army i mean it's uh it must have been as as you said it must have been a big leap yeah um well like i said you know at this time i really i was not sure of myself at all and and the idea of myself making a decision for myself it was just easier to follow someone else's lead or to follow you know, um, the environment, something that was happening. And, and for me joining the army, it's, it's, um, quite interesting. So at the time I was living, uh, my, my best friend and I shared a, a, a trailer. We lived in a trailer in, in Panacea, Florida. And, um, his brother at some point had talked to an army recruiter and as opposed to giving his telephone number, he give our telephone number. So one day this uh, army recruiter calls our house and is looking for uh, my best friend's brother. And, and I answered the phone and I said, no, he doesn't live here. I mean, uh, I don't know why he give you this number or whatever. And, and, you know, uh, as a, army recruiter you know really good army recruiter does he um he instantly went into hey so uh so what's your name have you ever thought about joining the army and and started with this real strong positive um you know like build me up kind of talk you know i mean oh man you can you can save the world kind of stuff you know and and you get that that idea of like man i can do all this great things me, a nobody, a, a, a garbage, somebody who has no value, uh, I can go and do something and be better. I can be bigger, you know? So, so the idea of that really kind of pushed me a little bit to say, well, I, I'd be willing to, to take the pre-ASVAB and see where we're at. You know, I w- wasn't ready for a full commit here, but, you know, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, take the, the pre ASVAB and see where it goes from there. That's the um, kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the pre ASVAB is really, you know, just kind of that, that placement test to see where you would place, uh, in the army and what kind of skills would best suit you and, and, um, and so on and so forth. And I, I took the test and to be honest with you, I, I can't say that I did real good, uh, but I did well enough that I could join the army. And, um, and I got to, uh, I got to MEPS, which MEPS is the military, um, processing center. And, uh, they continued where the, the recruiter left off. And, and the next thing, you know, I was standing in a room with an American flag behind me and my right hand raised <laughs> swearing to, de- to defend and support the constitution of the United States and so on. Right. Wow. <laughs> And so, yeah, and so basically then the next step was uh, going to basic, right, after being processed. Yeah, so um, as I got my ship out date, um, you know, my best friend, as I said, I was living with my best friend at the time. He um, He's like, oh, we got to have this big party. So he threw this big party for me. And, and, and at the time, both of us were working in restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, in, in the restaurant industry, you know, when you think of like, you buy things like mayonnaise and stuff like that for your house, you get these small jars, but in a restaurant, you get these big, like gallon jug 
mayonnaise jars. And I uh, have experience in that as well in my teenage <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, so he took me, he set that thing out and, and everybody, uh, you know, was drinking and a party and, and, and you know, I, I have to admit I was underage, uh, but uh, at the time I, well, you know, we don't care and we don't think about things like that at the time, but I, I was uh, at the party and everybody who was drinking was taking and putting their, their beer bottle caps inside this big jar. And at some point I, I went to sleep and in between the time I was asleep and the time that I woke up to ship out, somebody had taken all my clothes out of my ship out bag and they lined the bottle of the bag, the bottom of the bag with these beer bottle caps. And then they put all my clothes on top. So when I arrived at basic training, that one of the first things that we had to do is we had to do a, a like a bag shakedown and um, they have you take and open the bag and literally just dump it straight on the ground. So when I, when I dumped that bag on the ground, uh, naturally an entire night of partying beer bottle caps followed right behind my clothes and literally just went everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I think I had every drill sergeant on the entire installation hitting me in the forehead and the back of the head with the, the brim of their drill sergeant cap. Um, and and just I, I can remember and still when I close my eyes, I can still hear, you know, my my senior drill sergeant, you know, what are you an alcoholic? You like to drink? I bet you smoke dope, too, you know, and so, you know, it really kind of set the tone for me in basic training. But it, what I found out was that it really didn't bother me. I was so used to, like, having this psychologically, you know, harsh tone that when the drill sergeant started talking harsh or, or, or bad to me, because, you know, as, as a, as a drill sergeant, the idea is you break people down and then you build them back up. Right. And um, so this, this period where they were like really kind of trying to break me down, it was like, I, I'm already at the bottom of the bucket. You, you can't break me down anymore. This, it doesn't even bother me. You know, you, you, you don't have anything that I haven't already heard or, or experienced. Uh, so, Surprisingly, it impacted me a lot less than what I feared. And with that, that, that give just an extra little bit of self-confidence of, I can do this. Yeah. You know, this is, this is not, this isn't that bad. I can do this and it, it doesn't hurt me. Mm. And did you, did you inform your family when, when you decided to join or, cause you didn't mention that? Yeah, well, I, I talked to my mother um, and I told her I was joining the army and, and, and I, I talked to my, my uh, grandmother and my, my grandmother, I think was probably the most uh, shocked of the family and, and not because, you know, like, Hey, you're actually doing something kind of shocked, more of a, like, what are you crazy? Why are you going in the army? Are you trying to get yourself killed? You need to get away from that. We, you know, um, it, and you know, it, her mindset at the time, and you're, you're talking about 96. So, um, we, it was a different political environment at the time. Um, and we were under a, 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 
a period of peace. Uh, we were yeah. we were not in war or anything. We didn't have any of that. But still, at that moment, my my grandmother was like, you know, this is crazy. We're going to get a Republican in office. You're going to go to war. You're going to die. You're going to, you know, no way. You need to get out. Um, but of course, by then, I it was a little bit too late. I I didn't tell anybody until after I'd already raised my hand and joined. So. Yeah. That, that must have been, I mean, that must have, I don't know how you dealt with that, but that must have been a little bit of a, uh, of a challenge as well to get this discouragement or I don't know how you've processed that. Well, uh, from my grandmother, it probably, it, 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 I have a lot of love and respect for my grandmother. Um, and I, I always, always did. So, uh, yeah, it kind of, it, it did kind of um, set me back a little bit, but I anticipated it, uh, which is why I didn't say anything to anybody until it was too late. Because then, uh, again, I'm at that state of, uh, I don't, I, I'm not at an impasse that I have to make a decision here. It's too late. I, I can't. So I don't have to decide whether or not I do or don't want to do it in the face of opposition to my family. Uh, I just have to tell them, yeah, I already did it. It's too late. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay. So you, you were basically prepared anyways. Like uh, yeah, I was. Okay. I, okay. I kind of anticipated that my grandmother was not going to be happy of it. Um, right. And to be honest with you, I, there may have been some emotions with uh, my parents, but um I, it did not have a strong enough impact that I remember now in, you know, 2021, what their emotion or, or, or reaction was. Right. And this is, this is important. The reason it's good to have this narrated, like, again, as a story, because it's also the way you've processed it and the way it's helpful for you today. And I think yeah. this is key. Okay. So going forward, I mean, you, you've had quite a long uh, military career. So what were some of the highlights there? Yeah. So um, uh, as I said earlier, I, I spent 24, nearly 24, not exactly 24, but nearly 24 years in the army. Um, and I, I have to say that one of the deciding factors in me going to North Carolina and joining the army and all these different things was the fact that all that negative talk of like, I'm not smart. I'm, you know, negative talk turned into my own self negative talk. So I told myself I wasn't as well. Um, and then I started believing it as well. So, you know, the idea of college really just was not an option. So once I got in the army though, by the time I was at my my first duty station uh, in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, um, and this was in 1998, uh, I joined in 96 and I spent a little bit of time in the reserves. But by 98, I was active duty and I was in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And my first squad leader, he told us all to get outside, you know, the whole squad and in a squad, there's about seven people, you know, and, and uh, he told us all to get outside. And then he started marching us down the road and we marched, you know, a good mile and a half. And we arrived at the education center, the, the military education center. And he told us, um, and, and, and it was a different army then you didn't ask why you didn't question your leadership. And, and you quite honestly, 
you feared them of what they would do. Um, and he said to us all, all right, this is the education department. Um, you're going to go inside and I don't care uh, what university you pick. I don't care what class you pick, but you're going to go and you're going to enroll in one of these universities and you're going to enroll in a class and I don't care what it is. And, and of course, his, his language substantially more flowery than that. You know, we're talking about infantry. I was an infantryman at the time. And, um, and, and, you know, I, I, I trusted that it was not going to be good if we did not do it. So that's exactly what I did. And, and I enrolled in my, my first college class with uh, Hopkins uh, Community College. Uh, and the first class was a history class. And I, I thought, you know, oh, I like history. So, you know, I'll just take history and, and appease the, the beast, if you will, you know, and the beast being the squad leader that was outside. Um, and, you know, during this time, I'd also gotten married. Um, I had two kids. So there was a lot of stressors that were at home as well. You know, a lot of arguing and fighting. I mean, I, we got married um, really, I think, um, for a lot of the wrong reasons. And um, and we just really wasn't compatible. But we, we argued and fought and, and that arguing and fighting eventually led to um a little bit of unfaithfulness from my from my ex-wife um which caused a lot of damage again to my my self-confidence so i i was going through this ebb and flow of of building myself up a little bit and then something happens what's wrong with me why would she do this why you know uh uh you know does she not care about me does she not love me and different things like that and um, so there was really a lot of things that were going on there and, and, um, you know, in the same time I'm trying to progress in the military. So, uh, you know, my natural step at this point was to try and get promoted to Sergeant. So I, I started talking to my squad leader and I, I really want to go to the, to the, um, promotion board, you know, I, I need to, I need to get promoted. And he was like, ah, I don't know about that Davis. I mean, you know, uh. I think you need a lot of work. No, 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 I'm, I'm ready. I want, I want to go. So he sent me, he sent me to the promotion board and, um, they, they completely destroyed me. I mean, I, I went in there and they're, they're asking me questions and I'm, I'm fumbling around, you know, and, um, and they threw me out. They literally threw me out of the promotion board. Um, and you know, I, I, I came out and my squad leader was like, see, I told you you wasn't ready, you know, and, and, um, but in the same aspect, he was not the kind of person to just really beat me down. Instead, what he said is now I want you to listen to me. I know you're not ready, but I'm going to get you ready and I'm going to prepare you and I'm going to take care of you. And we're going to get you in a state where you can. I went through probably four or five boards and, and these boards, literally, I, I was told everything under the sun uh, from, you know, they asked me a question, I, I would answer real soft, well, you have no confidence. If you don't, if you don't believe the answer yourself, how am I supposed to believe the answer? You know, speak up, you know, have confidence in what you're saying. These different things really helped and build me. And, and by the, the, the fifth or so time I went to the promotion board, and that's five consecutive months. Uh, I I actually, you know, 
passed the board and and uh, was well, I wasn't promoted at that time, but I would receive the points I needed in order to be promotable. Um, and this whole time, like I said, we're having arguing and fighting with my my ex-wife. We separated, we um, reconsecrated our marriage and got back together and but still arguing and fighting and different things like that. So um, from there, I I ended up going to Vicenza, Italy, and that was my my first tour overseas. And uh, as soon as I got there, you know, it's it, it was one thing after another. And, you know, I I say, you know, my ex-wife, I mean, my my ex-wife had a lot of her faults, uh, but, you know, it's not like I didn't contribute to a lot of these things. And and uh, it just took me a long time to see where I contributed as well. Um, one of those things was that, you know, I. I I was gone a lot, you know, I, I deployed, I, I went to Kosovo, I went to different training exercises throughout Germany, I deployed at some point to, to Bosnia, and, and it was Bosnia that really kind of, you know, ended things with me and my first marriage, and, and we completely separated at that point. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So I, and just following up on what you said about your first experience with the board, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it was a lesson for you. And even though your, you know, your, your, your sergeant was, um, was uh, very uh, strict and maybe rough, he did put you on a constructive path after. And I think, I think this is an important uh, theme as well in, in terms of mm -hmm. how people are, you know, yeah. we see more and more of this kind of uh, fragility in a lot of young people. But I think this is a really important thing is whether somebody's strict and constructive or just you know strict and destructive and just trying to put you down right and it, it honestly it was it was it was it was these points that i i started kind of recognizing and seeing going all the way back to my dad that you know not everything he did was bad that there were a lot of positive things and i started understanding and 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 reshaping certain events that were in, in a more positive aspect for me uh, and it was the same experience that i had through basic training you know you kind of break you down to build you back up and it was the same experience i had with my my first squad leader where you know kind of break you down a little bit to teach you a lesson and then build you back up um and you know quite honestly and, and and i'm not saying that the right method is to break somebody down to build them back up um but just to capitalize a little bit on that restructuring aspect and you kind of spoke a little bit about it earlier you know in leadership that's that's what we have to do as leaders you know there's there's a thin line between um you know like uh, uh, trying to um coerce or trick somebody into doing things to follow you and to influence people to follow you. So um, really part of that is reshaping how they see things because when you're the kid at home, you only see things from the, the point of view or the perspective as a kid. Um, when you're a parent, you see things uh, as 
the perspective of, of a parent and um you were a kid but you know let's be real i mean we forget what it's like to to be on our knees and and look around at the room from that angle to see it from that perspective um so it, it really comes down to perspective and being able to reshape the way people see things so that they understand the reason why behind it uh and then they're more apt to to follow uh, and that's really what ends up happening is is here I'm starting to understand that, you know, not everything is done as a malicious act. It is is to teach me something. And then if I choose, no matter whether what their intent is or not, if I choose to use it as something to learn and grow from, I can personally reshape it to learn and grow from that. Absolutely. And you can put that, you know, you can use that even with the relationships you've mentioned, mm -hmm. your first wife. Now, moving on, I mean, you've, you've, uh, you were in Italy for the first time, Vicenza, beautiful place. Uh, yeah. How was that? I mean, was this the first time you were outside of the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was the first time. Well, actually, I, I have to correct myself. I did go to England. Uh, on a deployment to train with the uh, uh, SAS or the, the special forces, the, the British special forces. And I did that from, um, uh, from Fort Campbell, but to be fair, that was a, that was like a training deployment and we had a lot less freedoms and liberty. So, you know, you spent most of that time in the field. So I could have been in the backwoods of Kentucky for, for all I knew um, compare, compared to, you know, where I was actually at. So Vicenza was the first time I was in, in another country and really just kind of unrestricted. You know, I could go and see things that I wanted to. I could travel. I could uh, experience different things. And in doing that, you know, and I, I told you after that deployment to Bosnia was that final, that, that final, you know, stone that, that really ended my, my first marriage. And, and at some point while I was in Italy, I, I met my current wife now. And, uh, and we started dating. And, uh, you know, I mean, she really kind of had a, a different perspective, a different view, not just on life, but uh, on the military, on on a lot of things uh, that that really kind of made me change my idea and my perspective of things that I thought I knew or I understood, and I had to start seeing things from a different perspective an Italian perspective. Uh, somebody I'm dating is Italian, grew up in Italy, went to school in Italy, experienced things completely different in a completely different culture. And I really had to start understanding that the American culture was not the only culture in the world. And, you know, there are other perspectives that we can look at things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that broadened your horizons in some ways. And uh, yeah, and this is, this is a very, a very important part of, of growth as well, like getting out. And I mean, by this time, it sounds like you've been already stepping out of your comfort zone quite a bit, though. Uh, yeah. From what you're from what you're describing now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, moving moving forward, I mean, you you were with your your wife and, you know, we, we've stepped forward to, you know, the 2000s. There's 9-11 happens. You are 
you were deployed uh, in Afghanistan or in Iraq for the first time? Yeah, so wars? so I met my my current wife in 2002. Uh, oh, okay. But we we um, we did not get married for four years. We dated for four years. You know, I kind of had that. Hey, I've already been there, done that. I I know how traumatizing it is to be married and then get divorced. So, you know, I really don't want to experience that again until I know that it is right. So we dated for four years before we ever got married. But uh, shortly after we started dating, um, I did get deployment orders for Iraq. And at the time I was with uh, the 173rd and um, and we jumped into to Iraq. We did a parachute jump into uh into the combat zone. Um, and it's really, it's this point where I, by this point I was a staff sergeant. Uh, it was my first real like leadership opportunity. I was a platoon sergeant. Uh, I had, I had soldiers that I was leading, uh, infantrymen, and we had daily missions throughout Iraq doing various different things, whether it was supporting the, uh, the brigade commander, um, or doing patrols and, and, um, you know, patrolling the, the, the local areas that we were in. And at some point, uh, we started having, uh, R and R. So R and R is like your rest and recuperation or rest and, you know, uh, and it's the opportunity for soldiers who have been in combat to, to get a couple of days to go home or to go someplace where they can kind of detox from a combat zone and relax a little bit um it's only 10 days and i i promise you 10 days is not many days uh and it's not really a full detox but for a deployed soldier those 10 days are probably the best 10 days of your life because it's you feel the weight of the, the whole world just kind of like lift off your shoulder for a couple of days and you can just kind of relax. But, but the problem is, is that, um, that's not the case for everybody. Um, for example, myself, I, uh, was in a convoy and I was in a, a an area called Samira, Iraq, and I was hit by an IED. Uh, IED is a improvised explosive device and uh, this this explosion went off and and you know the the cars were flipped and and um, you know a, a very loud traumatic damaging event um, and you know here I, I my ears are ringing uh, I can't I can't even hear. I can't think. There's so much going on. Uh, people are yelling. People are screaming. Um, we're moving into different positions. And I realize I have to do something. I, I'm a leader. I, I don't have time to be shocked. I don't have time to be frightened. And, you know, in the Army, they teach us, you know, train as you fight. And the reality is that you do things so many times over and over and over and over and over again. And, and you know, some people often, you know, refer to this as like, yeah, it's because uh, the Army brainwashed you. But and to some extent that that may be true. But the reality is, is that when this happened, what felt like an eternity of like 
me thinking what happened was only a few seconds. And then I immediately started getting my squad uh, and my platoons online. Uh, I started, you know, advancing to, to get into a good def uh, defensive and uh, reactive posture uh, to react to any potential uh, threat that may be there outside of the explosion. Uh, at the same time, you know, we had people that were, were treating wounded people and, and um, casualties and different things like this. So it was this event really that, that I, I was hit literally with an explosion of sink or swim, get out there and take care of your people, you know, and, and, and that, that repetition of train as you fight really kicked in and I didn't have to think I just reacted. I just did it. Um, so then when it comes to, you know, R and R and, and, and stuff, I had this traumatic brain injury now and, and, um, you know, it was causing a lot of different problems. I, I didn't see it. I, you know, people ask me, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. You know, I was, I was an infantryman, you know, nothing wrong with me. I'm going out on the next mission and that's exactly what I did. Um, but in reality, it was really the start of some, some, some damaging brain, uh, issues that were causing problems in my life. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess that's uh, also a misconception in terms of military and just following orders. Uh, I mean, in, in this case, you had no orders to follow. You had some intuition based on training and uh experience and you had to you had no time to think so it was it was quite uh yeah i mean it was quite an instinctual response but yeah and so talk about this journey forward because you had this then you you've had to deal with the the trauma which came, did it come progressively like were you did it so it didn't come all at once obviously because you were in this emergency situation and then, you know, you were toughened up or you, you were saying, I'm ready to go. But how did that progress later? Yeah. So first, I'll, I'll say that um, when we talk about leadership and not having orders and following orders or not following orders. So the reality is, is that there is a difference between a leader and a manager and a manager executes the ideas and thoughts of a manager of a, of a leader. I'm sorry. And a leader generates and creates ideas and thoughts, all right, strategic ideas and thoughts to be specific. Um, in the military, uh, there's always this, you know, like, are you a leader? Are you a manager? You're managing your team. And a lot of times that's exactly all you are as a, as a manager. You're managing your guys, you're managing your teams, and you're following the orders uh, of the officers and, the, and appointed over you and the president of the United States. Um, but in reality, in moments exactly like this, we have the freedom to make leadership decisions. So, and you make that decision based upon the information that you have at that moment um, and, and your capabilities and, and so on and so forth. And, and you make a decision right then. And that's really where the leadership aspect comes in because you have to execute. Now, even with that said, your leadership or your execution still needs to follow the strategic direction, the ideals, the um, 
uh, guidance that you have already received from the leaders above you. So, you know, it's not completely uh, execute 100% everything what I want to do. We still have to follow things like, you know, the, the, the laws of warfare and, and different things like that. Um, so anyway, moving forward from that, you know, no, I, I, I really can't say that something like to me noticeably hit me and I was like, oh, yeah, I got these problems now and stuff. Um, yeah, I I honestly did not see it. I didn't feel it. I mean, yeah, I had ringing in my ears. Uh, I ended up losing hearing. I, I had a little bit of damage to um, one of my knees. So I was in pain a little bit from the knees and, and a little bit of pain in my back and, and different things like that. But aside from that, you know, that was that was a part of being an infantryman, being a man, you know, that's, that wasn't, I'm hurt or damaged. It's not going to get me down kind of thing. And, and, and psychologically, you know, being an infantryman really kind of boosted a lot of that self-confidence because in, in infantry, you were either, um, you were either the guy that everybody picks on or you're the guy that's picking on everybody and uh, it's it's really hard to to be in the middle so um and I, I hate to say it that way but but at the time that's that's really what it was like and and uh so you either have to toughen up and be a man that's you know i know not politically correct now but that's really what the idea was at the time or uh you know be that be the guy that's that's weak you know um so you know it's like hey you need to go to the doctor you no, i'm fine i'm good and there's no problem you continue to go on missions you continue to do things you continue to 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 move forward um you know and, and we used to say you know hey take a knee and drink water you know um so from there i ended up leaving and i i went to uh, fort benning georgia and at the at fort benning georgia i had to uh to go through like a, a leadership development school and that was um actually my second leadership development school you know the first one happened uh before iraq which was a primary leadership development course uh for sergeants and then the second one uh, now it's a different name, but at the time was called a uh, basic non-commissioned officers course. And it was for your staff sergeants. Um, and I did very well in the course. So well that, that I ended up getting hired on to remain as a, a as a, you know, academy instructor. So I became an instructor for the uh, basic non-commissioned officers course. But in reality, I still kind of, was facing some of that, you know, when you have an alpha male, like a really, really strong alpha male type, and, and he's your student and he comes in, he will put into question your thought and your your authority and your decisions quick. And, and still, you know, quietly inside, there was a lot of times where I was, um, you know, kind of put out of place in my own mind of, of being, kicked back a notch by somebody who was a stronger alpha male. Um, from there, I ended up becoming a drill sergeant. And if there's anything in any job in the entire military that will boost an individual's uh, self-confidence, it is definitely being a drill sergeant. Uh, you are experienced to different levels of leadership that um, 
I, I don't I don't think that you could experience anywhere else in any other job in any other field other than being some type of drill instructor, whether that's a drill sergeant in the army or a, a drill instructor for a police force or, or um, other branches of service and so on. Uh, but you really are hit with all kinds of challenges and and you're really placed into a position of extreme power, really. Um, so so that really kind of helped to boost my my confidence and from there i think it was as a drill sergeant that i really really found my voice and i really found you know that confidence that i had been searching for for so long uh, and i was able to apply a lot of those things straight into all my future uh jobs after that excellent and yeah and i mean and part of that so there was was and this might sound bad, but was that making up for some of the challenges that that happened, like where the ego took a took a a beating in a way, like the with dealing with students that were more alpha, as you said, or was it just a non like a, not that way? Yeah. So we're really talking about two sides of a coin here. So uh, the NCO Academy. Uh, as a BNOC instructor, I was a staff sergeant and I was mm -hmm. teaching staff sergeants. So we're, we're essentially saying we're, I was teaching people that were at the same level as me. Whereas as a drill sergeant, I was teaching people who were civilians that came off the street and learning to be in the army. So, you know, as a, as a BNOC instructor, that challenge of being, you know, confronted with uh, challenging ideas and leadership and stuff was hard per se to, to, to kind of deal with. And I had to, I had to learn how to deal with that. Uh, whereas as a drill sergeant, um, like I said, you had, you had extreme power. And, and, and for me, it was, um, I served three years as a drill sergeant in the first year. Yeah, I would say I completely overcompensated. I was very loud. I was very aggressive. I was very, um, I was very, you know, strong, um, physically and verbally, if you will. Uh, and even in that year, that first year, I would say, when I go back and I look at that first year, I am to some extent ashamed of myself because I look at it and say, man, I, I cannot believe I acted or I behaved or I said some of these things. It's, it's so strong and, and, and so um, unproductive, if you will. Uh, but as a drill sergeant, like I said, it, it was probably the, the greatest explosion of, of leadership experience I had, because by the second year, you kind of started learning, you getting in the groove and you're learning where your place is and what your niche is and how to handle different situations, because you've been through a, a different, you know, the same thing like Groundhog Day, but with a different group of soldiers every three months. So every three months you're changing with a new group. So by the second year, You've are, you're on your fourth group of people. You've experienced a lot of things over and over and over again in repetition. So you kind of start learning how to deal with it. And then by the third year, uh, I was the quiet drill sergeant. I, I didn't yell. I never uh, was really aggressive. And quite honestly, 
it was there that I learned that just a, a very solemn look and saying, you know, private, I am very disappointed in you kind of actually went a lot farther than me screaming and yelling at the privates. I, yeah, I can imagine. So, I mean, with uh, the, the, you know, the yelling and screaming, some, someone will put up their defenses a lot more. And it sounds like you, like you, you were self-mastering yourself in, in, in this case that, you yeah. know, you were really learning to see, okay, what, you know, to have a, a heightened self, a self-awareness here in the sense of, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's the reaction. Here's the feeling that comes with it. Is it effective? So I think that's very important. Yeah. Now, going forward, you, you had, you moved around a little bit more. What were some other highlights uh, in terms of, you know, other places and, and uh, how you've dealt with the TBI and uh, PTSD yeah. even? Well, so when I, when I was done as a drill sergeant, you know, I, I ended up kind of moving around a little bit. I, I went to uh, Honduras and Honduras was um, what they call a dependent restricted tour. Uh, and I served in a, a senior leadership position there. And a dependent restricted tour basically means that you have to go by yourself. So uh, you can't take your family. And, and Honduras itself uh, was was not super dangerous. I mean, uh, San Pedro Sula and, and Comayawa and um, different places like that have very high crime rates, but it wasn't like it was a combat zone where, where the more dangerous area came in was that we were doing more of a, uh, you know, we reacted to things like uh, counter narcotics and stuff like that. So the movement of, of narcotics and stuff through South and Central America and, and, um, while the job itself was not um, extremely dangerous, if you were on one of the missions for one of these counter narcotics things, I mean, nobody wants their drugs taken from them. So it was was not was not a, a peaceful engagement. Um, but from there, I ended up I, I, I went to uh, Fort Carson and um, in Fort Carson is in Colorado, and I was originally slated to to go to 10th special forces group, but, uh, you know, the fourth infantry division was deploying to Afghanistan and they, they were looking for somebody to go as a platoon sergeant. And, uh, you know, I, on one side, I say like, you know, I, I seen an opportunity to, to serve in a, another leadership position that I wanted to do. And on the other side, you know, it's, it's not like I was given a whole lot of choice in the matter. I mean, I, I'm sure I could have fought it. Uh, I could have gone and talked to the SAR major at 10th group. He would have said no and, and pulled me over. Uh, and I, I willfully took it. And, but at this point, you know, I, I took it not because I was trying to follow. At this point, I took it because it was a, it was a platoon sergeant position and it was a leadership opportunity and I wanted it. So there was a different, definite switch here in my mental state and thinking of how I was conducting and leading myself um, from a, you know, following self-leadership style to a, you know, like leading self-leadership style. And um, it was also, you know, kind of during this time that I started thinking, you know, hey, maybe I... I need to to get back in college. Maybe I need to start, you know, trying to, 
you know, get a degree or something. Uh, so I did, I enrolled in, in classes again and, um, you know, and I, I had kind of taken a class here and there throughout my career up until this point, and this is 2010. Uh, but here I, I kind of, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit more, more proactive in my uh, education. So by the time I deployed to Afghanistan in 2011, um, in addition to everything that was going on in Afghanistan and what my mission was and different things like that, I was also staying up at night and studying and writing, you know, um, writing papers and turning papers in and different things like that, uh, there from, from Afghanistan. Um, I returned from Afghanistan and, and, and that's kind of really where I was unsure of where I was going to go with my military career. But, uh, by 2012, I, I ended up going to, um, uh, Athens, Greece, and I was on diplomatic status and I was in a senior leadership position. I was actually the uh, Office of Defense Cooperation uh, Senior Enlisted Leader. And uh, in this job, not only do I manage all of the officers of the station, but I also, um, you know, really am making decisions about um, how the daily running and and uh, our strategic direction uh, matching with the ambassador's strategic direction uh, for the for the country that we're physically in. So in this case was in, in Greece. So, you know, I started meeting with the Ministry of Defense. Uh, I started meeting with the NCO Academy, uh, the Hellenic um, NCO Academies um, and the Officer Academies. Uh, and different things like that to try and start shaping again we're using the word shaping for leadership in the direction that was beneficial not just for the hellenic government but also for the american government not just for the american government but for all of nato uh so we were trying to to go in a direction that would be beneficial for all of us for all allied partners and so on um so I did that for for a, a couple of years, and then you know I kind of finished out my career by moving to Stuttgart, Germany, uh, where I then uh, was again in a, a senior leadership position. And and I want to say that you know really that it was that point. It was like my last couple of steps in the army that I really started things started clicking and started coming together. And I started realizing this from this assignment relates to this right now. And this from this place actually relates to this and, and thinking all the way back, you know, my dad said this and it actually relates to this and so on. So I, I really started growing and uh, I enrolled in the joint special operations university and I took uh, the enterprise management uh, course. And through this course, you know, you start, you know, really thinking about how you lead in an enterprise. And, uh, you know, growing up, it was always, like I said in the beginning, you know, you, you don't ask why. When the sergeant says this, you don't really ask why. You just do it. But in the same aspect, why is a very good question. Why is what helps you influence people. When people understand the reason why you are doing something, they're more apt to 
follow you. They're more apt to do what needs to be done because they understand the importance behind what you're doing. They understand the why. And, and I really, you know, um, started understanding that I don't have to make all the decisions. You know, I, I have senior people that work for me. So they all are smart people. They are all experienced people. They can all bring great things to the table if I let them. Uh, and so I started this uh, and I called it the senior leader Roundtable. And I, I have one of my soldiers, a, a senior leader at the time to think because it was her idea that she came to me and said, you know, uh, hey, it'd be really nice if we had something where we kind of feel like we have our voice too. Uh, and, and she was probably the one that they all kind of put put up to coming to me and talking to me about it. But because all these different things were going on in my life and, and you know, I, I'm in college, I'm trying to explore different things about myself. I'm trying to learn more about myself. I was at that point in my life, I was very open to hear it. Uh, and it was probably one of the greatest things that I, I ever did leadership wise in my entire career, which was to simply accept the fact that I don't have to have the answer to everything and I don't have to, you know, develop plans and, and everything on my own, utilize the resources that I have and the resources I had included very smart and senior people. Yes. And it also sounds like there was a level of trust that was needed, right? To, yeah. to make that decision. And also, absolutely. The, also the idea that, you know, you're not, you don't have to be in control of every single aspect of what is going on. You don't need to micromanage. And I think that's a really important uh, aspect of leadership. Indeed. It, it is foundational, you know, it, it, to have really, to be a good leader, uh, you know, the, the foundation of leadership really builds off of trust. But, you know, things like trust and respect and, and so on, these are things that are not just given. These are things that are earned. These are things that you have to earn, but it's also things that you have to give because, you know, with any relationship, whether that be a personal relationship or a leadership relationship, everything is about a give and take. You have to give in order to receive. You cannot expect people to respect you and to trust you if you don't show them respect and trust back. Uh, you have to display that trust and that 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 respect. And once you do that, then of course you know um, uh, you see that a lot of a lot of fields kind of broaden out and and your life becomes a lot easier really definitely now that's yeah these are these are great points to make especially for the listeners who are you know inquiring into leadership and studying these things now moving forward you you've had to deal also with some of the issues that you've mentioned before from your deployments and it sounds like, again, one of the themes that keeps reoccurring, which I really like, is that you you put, you know, you reconcile parts of your life, you reconciled teachings from the military, and they are really helpful. And I mean, and, and you're putting them into practice outside of the specific context, which I think is something that uh, people can really benefit from in general. 
Yeah. Well, at this point, you know, we're talking 2019 and um, I, I kind of, I would call this my, my road to retirement. And, and it was during this time that I really, I, I really started looking at myself. You know, I had, I had attended that, um, you know, the joint special operations university, which really kind of sparked an influence much stronger desire to try and get my education and, and get squared away in that. And I started looking at different jobs, you know, oh, I'm going to retire soon. Where am I going to work at? You know, I mean, I, I want to continue working retirement from the militaries. Certainly, you know, um, and not staying in Europe uh, is not enough to really live and survive off of. And as I was looking for different jobs, I started realizing, hey, you know, all these great military experience and achievements that I've had and this and that, it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't guarantee me a job anywhere. Uh, and, and quite honestly, a bachelor's degree was really, uh, really was just the, the, the minimum to get your foot in the door in a lot of the jobs that, that are here. So I, I focused, I, I buckled down. I, I think I probably slept four hours a night for a year and I really, you know, and, 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 and I went to the university of Charleston and, and, you know, for those who don't know, um, there are different aspects of attending or going to university and, and there's the definite in-person university where you sit in class then there is the online where people you know see it and you know it's it's really just you know like you're going on blackboard and you're doing certain number of assignments and you're turning it in and then there's university of charleston leadership department which is kind of somewhere it's like a hybrid in the middle um at two o'clock in the morning i would get up and sit in a live broadcast uh, lecture with my professor, with all the other students. And it didn't matter where we were in the world. Um, you had to sit in class virtually during the lecture. And, and you attended uh, your class and did assignments and everything, just as if I were physically sitting in the class, but with some aspects of if I were remote and attending standard online classes. Um, but it was it was in this time frame that really expanded that last stint in the army and I really started growing because at this point I'm I'm really open. I'm really trying to understand things. I'm really trying to see things. And I started having a real strong focus on self-awareness. And that was really because I was introduced to uh, Daniel Goleman's ideas surrounding emotional intelligence. And um, in, in really kind of exploring emotional intelligence got me truly looking in the mirror at myself and, and trying to understand. And, um, you know, I was, I was attending classes. I was hearing different things, you know, a, a, an individual, named Randy Posh, who unfortunately has passed away, he, he, I remember him saying, you know, when you're screwing up and no one's saying anything to you, uh, it means that everybody's given up on you, you know, and, and these different things start making you think about like, you know, has people stopped, you know, talking to me? It, it, am I open and aware enough of my own self uh, that I'm still growing and stuff? And, you know, in doing that, you start, 
really coming face to face and head on with some of your biases and the things that happened when you were a child and grew up in church and all these different things. And you start realizing what a big role that those biases from even way back when you were a child are actually playing in your current behavior and your current decisions and, and things like that. And, um, you know, it, it, in the same things where Randy Posh was talking about how experience is, is what you get when you don't get what you wanted, you know, I'm, I'm instantly thrown back to my father. He's like, you can't always get what you want, you know? So now things are really starting to just kind of tie in and I'm starting to understand things. But the more I do, the more I start realizing Cameron Davis has some problems. You know, I'm looking in the mirror and and I'm a, seeing how, you know, how I am behaving personally, you know, with my wife and with my children and with the people around me and and how, um, you know, sometimes my reactions are more aggressive. They're more um you know, uh, 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 they're not well controlled. Um, so an emotional intelligence is really all about learning how to identify those different emotions, how to control these different emotions, and then how to relate that into the, the you know, our surroundings, the environment that we're in. And, and it, it really starts playing into your family life. And you know, and I'm retiring and, you know, you got to make sure you take care of all yourself medically and and physically and so on before you retire because you need to get it in your records. So it was this point that I, I kind of approached the uh, uh, TBI clinic, the traumatic brain injury uh, clinic in Launchstuhl, Germany. And they did this really long, lengthy, uh, over the course of like two month assessment on me. And during that assessment, they determine or decide whether or not you need the services of the TBI clinic and and admit you or you don't and they just target you into different areas that maybe you need to focus on so after this they they uh determine yes you definitely need some some help and some assistance and and mind you you know I mean up until this point I don't see it in myself so when you ask me, how am I? Oh, I'm good. I'm good because I don't really see it in myself. Uh, but when you're open and you start looking at the way people are reacting and behaving around you, you start understanding that they're behaving as a reaction to the way that you're behaving and so on and so forth. So clearly there is some sort of some issue or problem there. Um, and, and there I started learning more specifically about things like uh, how the amygdala works in your fight or flight mode and um, how that information enters your brain and how you react and stuff like that, you know, and, and you start being able to relate and understand yourself as like something is happening and you're kind of sitting outside yourself. You can see that it's happening, but you feel like you have no control as to how to address it or how to um, react. You know, you you're, you're seem like an unwilling participant in the whole matter. Um, so it, in that aspect, it was where I started learning that I don't have to be an unwilling participant sitting outside. And uh, I remember looking at it, a way to try and 
and teach my kids about it. And I come across this thing where it was talking about the guard dog and the wise owl. And it was explaining how the amyg uh, amygdala serves kind of like as your guard dog. It's the one that reacts really quick. You know, it doesn't think about anything. It just reacts. But the wise owl is your your prefrontal cortex in the front of your brain. And it's the one that reaches out to other aspects of your brain and says, hey, has this ever happened? Is this something we need to get upset about? Is this something we need to worry about? You know, and if it's not, then it comes back to the amygdala and it says, okay, calm down. Everything's okay. You know, and that's how you're able to control it. But when you're in this fight or flight from, you know, uh, uh, all these tra uh, traumatic and uh, events, that wiring inside your brain has been rewired and it doesn't quite work that well anymore. So even if you are able to talk to the wise owl, if you will, uh, that's what kind of puts you in that sitting outside yourself. So, you know, it gets real neurological about how you have to figure out a way to rewire your brain essentially. And, um, and that's where in the treatment, they started talking about this, uh, uh, SGB, which is a staleate ganglion block, and uh, it's a shot that goes in your neck, and it, I, I don't really know exactly how to uh, describe it other than the fact that it's it's kind of like you know a, a relaxer. It kind of goes into that that nerve and just kind of relaxes things and makes it very relaxed. So then when something happens, you're you don't immediately go into fight or flight you just kind of like wander around a little bit and what it does is it allows new neural paths to start developing. And if you work on it and sometimes it requires more than one treatment, what happens is you develop new neural paths that communicate with the wise owl. Uh, so now you're, you're actually able to kind of address some of the things. It's not a perfect science. It's still, I, still see myself on several occasions where you know i react in a way and then i look at myself and say okay that that was not an appropriate reaction uh the growth part comes in now is that when i realize that's not an appropriate reaction i say i'm sorry that was not an appropriate reaction um so, and this also came with a lot of visits to therapists and psychologists and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that are there with soldiers and, and so on, you know, you're afraid you're going to lose your security clearance and so on and so forth. But really the biggest thing was to be able to understand how anxiety was working in my life, how anger was working in my life, how pain from my back and my knee. And, you know, I ended up having surgery on my knee and uh, these traumatic memories that are waking me up in the middle of the night and stuff, how all these different things play a role in my behavior, my biases, my past, you know, all these things play a role in the behavior. Um, and then I, I started, you know, going through like some, some chronic pain clinics, which uh, helped me to better understand how these you know, uh, uh, sensors in our body, you know, called nociceptors really transmit that information uh, up the spine of your body and into your brain. And again, those are things that hit the fight or flight. You know, I mean, something brushes against your leg and uh, you have this memory 
of uh, a snake that, you know, almost or could have or maybe did bite you in the leg. And now when you're walking through the woods, a brush, you know, barely touches your leg and you immediately jump like a mile high and, and, and five feet away. And that's because that was that immediate fight or flight reaction of you instantly got a response of like, it's a snake, get away, you know, so and, and that's exactly what you do. Um, but when you start understanding how this works and stuff like that, you're just better able to control and to manage and and um, really focus on those things. And and I have to be honest, it's it's tiring. It's it's a lot of work. You know, I mean, you got to think about it. You got to uh, uh, stay attuned to it all the time. Uh, it's not something that just comes natural. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's it's how bad do you want it uh, when you realize it? and now your eyes are open, do you do nothing or do you take action? Yeah, and I think one important thing that you mentioned here relating to brain plasticity, how we can rewire our brains, is that the more you practice, so the more you cement these responses, the better you are trained. And as you said, like you were, you were pretty much trained in this fight or flight in the sense that you had been you know, reacting and, and working in that state of being. And now it's, it is a constant uh, struggle, a constant work, but I think it is worth it. And yeah, as we are just uh, running out of time, I would just like to ask you some, you know, for those who are listening, maybe uh, military veterans and others, uh, you know, the general public, what are some recommendations that you would give, uh, especially with, you know, with your life journey, your experiences and your, you know, your path now as it is to growth? What are some recommendations? Yeah, so uh, the first thing that I think I would really highlight is that while it may take you a long time to admit or to see your issues or problems if you've experienced some of these things you have to keep in mind that your family who's lived with you um they've known and they've lived with it a lot longer than you've realized it so once you realize it, you have to experience it or you have to to, to give a little bit of of uh, empathy and you have to exercise a little bit of patience with them um and you have to understand that you know i mean uh, it may be new to you but it's not really new to them. Um, so for me, kind of, you know, with everything that I've had from low self-confidence, um, you know, as a child to, you know, where I started building different confidence and, and serving in different leadership positions and stuff and, and so on throughout my career, um, really one thing that I, I recognize is that you're only as, as much or as little of a person, uh, as you yourself believe yourself to be. So if you believe yourself and you, and you give those negative talk, that negative uh, language to yourself, your brain hears it. And when your brain hears that negative talk from yourself, it behaves and acts exactly in that manner. So, you know, you got to get rid of the negative talk and, and really kind of see yourself as more than what, you know, uh, what you give yourself credit for. And, and if you don't have an education, I, I would say definitely get an education, but not, 
you know, I, there's a lot of stigma about, you know, people having college degrees and what does college degree really do for me? You know, I talk to, to some people, uh, even within my family that says, you know, oh, I wasted so much money on a four-year degree and now I can't do anything with it and it's just garbage and so on and so forth. And, and what I say to that is worry less about what it's going to do for you professionally and focus more on what it's going to do to you personally. How can you apply what you're learning to yourself to make you a better person? And, you know, it, it, it for me, I was a really hard self-starter. And, and as you heard, you know, I mean, it took me all the way until, you know, 2018, 2019 to really say, oh man, you know what? I really need to get my degree and, and get focused on it. And the key is, in in my opinion, is imagination, visualizing yourself physically accomplishing what it is that you're trying to, to accomplish. You know, if you can if you can see yourself, if you can visualize yourself getting through whatever it is that you're trying to get through, whether it be college or anything that you're trying to do, if you can visualize yourself, you can do it. All you have to do is focus on that visualization. Uh, and then the last thing that I would say really is, um, I think most people have heard the idea surrounding the serenity prayer, which is, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And what I take from that, and that's that's really from all my experience and things that, you know, what I can and what I cannot take and what I can change and what I can't change, you know, I realize that we can't control, you know, how other people behave. We cannot, we can't change the way people act or behave. The only thing that we can do is change the way we behave and the way we react to others' behaviors. So when somebody is behaving uh, what you feel is inappropriate to you, you are at a point to make a choice. You can either react with likeness or you can control your own emotions and controlling your own emotions will allow you to be a better leader. It will allow you to make wiser decisions and it will allow you to keep that uh, fight or flight mode where it shuts down other parts of your brain to where you can't even think, you know? So if you can control yourself enough to control your own behavior and reaction, you're going to lead a lot better. And, and take into account the fact that every decision that you make is surrounded with biases and, and biases are very, very real. Those biases can reach all the way down and, and uh, I, I can't remember who wrote it, but I read a book about, you know, iceberg biases or behaviors. And when you think of an iceberg, you have a very small part that's above the water and then a huge, huge, deep, deep root that goes down into the water. And that's what our biases and beliefs are, that deep, deep root that's down in the bottom. And because of that, it's really, really hard to face those biases but if you can learn to identify them to address them and if need be change them that's going to take you a lot of places it's going to make you a better leader and um yeah and i i basically get that from from my experience and um 
And just thinking of that one line of the serenity prayer, you know, change the things I can change and, you know, have the courage uh, and the wisdom to make a difference and, and accept the things that I can't change. So yeah, that's, that's what I would, I would give. Absolutely. And that's a, a great way to close it. I'm sure there was Providence also helping you throughout your life, but that will be for another conversation. But Cameron, your first uh, podcast, uh, amazing. And uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, awesome. Hey, I really appreciate you having me uh, and allowing me the time to kind of tell a little bit my story. And I hope anything that I have uh, said today uh, really goes a step farther. And, and if anything I said helps somebody else, then it's, it's all worthwhile. So thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners.